Welcome to the City Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. As a community of faith, we are passionate about helping people find and follow Jesus. All right, well, good morning. Let's take our Bibles. Let's go to Acts chapter number 19. And certainly thankful for the calm and the peace that comes from knowing our Heavenly Father and our Savior, the one who is all-powerful. I look forward to sharing him with you today. And so let's take our Bibles to Acts chapter 19 as we continue our study through the book of Acts, you say, Pastor, is it ever going to end? <laughs> Not if I have anything to do with it. No, I'm kidding. We're going to, we will. We're getting there. Don't worry. Hey, you can see the ending. Don't read ahead, I'd say. Don't read ahead. But no, I'm excited. It's been, uh, we've been learning a lot. And I think it's been such a great book for us during this time in our society and in our city. Just to remind us of the fact that God is in control of all things. And today we'll even see that in our passage some. I want to begin by just uh, relating a story I read about a pastor back from years ago. I think he actually died in 1960, and so he was born in the late 1800s, and it was quite a while ago, of course. So uh, he passed away a, a long time ago. His name was Dr. Um, Donald Barnhouse. I've got a picture of him here, and uh, he was pretty well-known. He, he pastored, uh, most famously, a pretty well-known church in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, in the United States, and he related this story of when he was a very young man, just in his late teens, I believe, as he was serving uh, during the end of World War One, and so for us, World War Two seems like so far ago, uh, long ago. But for him, as a young man, he was in the war right at the very end, 1917, 18, 19. He was in the service for a while, and he relates a story that he was in Belgium just following armistice, and he was in Belgium. And at that time, of course, when Germany had vacated the premises, they had just really left behind their tanks and trucks full of armor, armory and everything like that. And they had just gotten out of the country. And so that he tells a story that as a young man, he was still in service and wearing his uniform and, of course, represented the allied forces there. And he was just sort of out for a walk uh, in the spring of 1919, man, over 100 years ago, if you think about it. And as he was out walking and he was examining the, the trucks and he was just walking out on a spring day and he describes, he says, the sun was shining and uh, there was no wind at all. It was very still and he's there uh, near the town of Mons, um, uh, Belgium was the town that he was at. And while he was walking down this road that was lined by these great trees, what he noticed is that some leaves were falling uh, from these trees. Now, it was springtime. And he took notice because he thought, well, it's not fall, <laughs> you know, it's not the time when leaves are normally falling. And he tells that as, one, as he was walking, one of the leaves fell and kind of got caught in his uniform, in one of the straps of his uniform. And as he went to sort of brush it away, it just completely crumbled. It, just com- it was completely dried out, and it just broke up and, and crumbled away. It was then that he looked up and, again, noticed others were falling. And to him, he was saying, they're falling without cause. <laughs> you know? He says, why are these leaves falling? When it suddenly dawned on him, it was spring. It was spring. And what happens in spring with trees is that as the sap begins to come up from the roots, that uh, the buds began to form and they began to push themselves out on the tree branches. And as those buds begin to blossom and push the, and the sap comes out and begins to push out the new leaves and the buds come up, anything that is dead, anything that is lifeless is pushed out. And that's what it was with these leaves. These leaves were ones that had survived. They had clung on and hung on all through the fall and all through the winter season, but now they were completely dead. And so as new life came, it pushed out the old leaves. Now, to me, that's such a wonderful illustration of what new life in Christ is like, 
what new life in Christ is like, as we uh, who have accepted Christ as our Savior, as uh, life begins to take hold in us, how that new life in Christ begins to push out the old. Sometimes it takes longer than others, doesn't it? Sometimes certain things take, uh, take a while, and sometimes those old leaves, if you want to use that metaphor, hang on. But if we will allow the word of Christ to dwell in us richly, eventually those leaves will quietly but most surely begin to drop off and away from our life. Now, I share that illustration with you because that's what's happening in Ephesus in this moment. If you remember back to last week in our, in our study at the beginning there uh, around 18 and 19, what we saw uh, was people coming to Jesus Christ and as a result, the trappings of their old life, the sin of their old life was being destroyed and being pushed out. So much so that there was a public bonfire <laughs> in order to burn the things that uh, reminded them of their idolatry and their occultish practices. And while there might have only been one bonfire, I like to think that there were probably maybe more than one around the city. The one, of course, that we read about last week was very significant, and a lot of things happened there, and a lot of wealth was burned up. But I believe that it was, it's a metaphor as well for what was taking place in the city of Ephesus as many people were coming to Christ, and the old way of their life was being destroyed and being pushed away. The gospel, of course, we know was spreading all through Asia Minor, and that would not happen unless that important inward change was taking place that resulted in the outward change as they pushed away the old way of living in their lives. And to me, what I see is true revival happening in Ephesus. If you remember back to verse number 20 of Acts 19, it says, so mightily grew the word of God and prevailed. I don't think Paul would ever write that or Luke would ever write that word unless he understood that there was a revival happening. Something great was happening in the city of Ephesus. And so today where we're going to pick it up, we're going to pick up in verse number 21 here in just a moment. But what we're going to see is, uh, I guess what I want to share with you today is what you can expect when you allow the word of Christ to dwell in you, what you can expect when that new life begins to take root in you and when you begin to push out some of the old things of your life. And this applies to both new Christians and old Christians. I say old Christians, you know what I mean? Mature believers, because sometimes as mature believers, we still have some of those leaves just sort of clinging on at the top. We have some of those things that uh, we have not yet quite allowed Christ to remove from us or to heal in us. And so uh, that's what I want you to notice today in the passage is what we can expect when somebody experiences transformation through Christ. And so today in your notes, oh, by the way, first time we've had note papers. Isn't that great? In about 15 weeks. <laughs> I was worried about passing coronavirus on the papers, but then I read up and I think we're okay. So anyway, if you don't want to use them, just put them on the ground. But uh, I figured we can start doing notes again in church. Um, but point number one today, we're going to see in our passage how transformation will bring persecution. Now you said, I'm sure some of you were like, well, I thought this was going to be a very uplifting sermon. It is, it is. Don't worry, we'll get there. Uh, but first we need to talk about the realities of new life in Jesus Christ. And the fact is, is that transformation will always bring persecution or adversity. Look at verse number 21. And after these things were ended, so what things were ended? This is the, the great revival that's taking place. People are coming to Christ. I don't think it means that, no one, that everyone stopped getting saved, but I think like just this amazing outward expression that was taking place had ended. It says that Paul purposed in the spirit when he had, pa uh, when he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia to go to Jerusalem saying, after I've been there, I must also see Rome. So Paul here is laying out his plans. So what he did was he sent into Macedonia two of them that ministered unto him, Timotheus and Erastus, but he himself stayed in Asia for a season. Well, I think things were going pretty well in Ephesus, and so Paul decided it's time for me to move on. 
It's time for me to continue on. And so he made preparations to return to Jerusalem, but he wanted to return through Jerusalem by going to Macedonia and visiting the churches there and encouraging them. And then following Jerusalem, he says, I would love to go to Rome to preach the gospel. We see it throughout Paul's ministry. He often mentioned that he would love to go to Rome. I would like to go to Rome. Up until this point, he still had not been there, but it was a desire of his heart to go to Rome and preach and teach there. He's been in Ephesus now over two years. He's been working. He's been preaching. Uh, he's been preparing the church leaders to take uh, the, the believers there to the next step. At the same time, we know Paul had also been writing. And we believe that as he sent ahead Timotheus and Erastus, that they in fact carried with them what we know today as 1 Corinthians, that first letter to the Corinthian church. And so he sent them ahead to do some advanced work for the gospel. And so for Paul, he's ready to go. And he never was content to stay in one place for too long. That was just sort of how God wired him. He had a, he had a vision and a passion for the entire world to hear the gospel. And so for Paul, it might have been a very surreal experience to be there for that extended period of the revival in Ephesus. Remember, in many other places that he went to, he would go and he would preach, and then just a few people would get saved, right? And then later on, we would hear about this spread of the gospel that would take place. And so for Paul, for him to be there and experience this for two and a half years, we know he was there. Uh, he really, I mean, it would have been surreal for him, I think, a little bit, just to sort of be in that environment and to uh, experience it. But I, as I'm sure Paul expected, the experience didn't last very long. I mean, it just it started getting going. The revival was happening. And then Satan began to bring some adversity. And don't we know Satan loves to bring adversity to our lives? If, you're, if you remember what it was like when you first got saved, uh, or if any time you've tried to serve the Lord or step into a new uh, mode of ministry for the Lord or make decisions for the Lord, what always happens? Adversity, difficulty, trials come. Old things from your past are coming up again. And that's what we see here. Satan is not going to stand idly by while revival happens in Ephesus. And so he begins to brew some unrest, some violence there in the city. Verse number 23. And the same time, so we have the revival, we have the things changing. At the same time, there arose no small stir about that way. There was no small stir. So if it's not a small stir, what is it? It's a big stir, right? <laughs> big stir. And so there's some unrest. There's something big that's happening. And it's because of that way. Christians were still called those of the way at the time. And I love that. The way. But because of what was happening, there was a stir. And it came about primarily by a guy by the name of Demetrius. Demetrius. So let's look at verse number 24. For a certain man named Demetrius. See, I wasn't lying. Demetrius. Uh, and what was he? He was a what? Say it with me. A silversmith, which made silver shrines for Diana, brought no small gain unto the craftsmen, whom he called together with the workmen of like occupation. And he said, sirs, ye know that by this craft we have our wealth. Verse 26. So he's speaking to the other craftsmen. Moreover, you see in here that not alone at Ephesus, but almost throughout all Asia, this Paul, now he names him. He says, this Paul hath persuaded and turned away much people, saying that they be no gods which are made with hands. Now, we experienced that back in Athens as he spoke to them. You know, you're not to serve these gods that were made with hands. So we imagine that he continued to speak that way at different cities. Verse 27, Demetrius still talking. He says, so that not only is our craft in danger to be said at naught as nothing, but also that the temple of the great goddess Diana should be despised and her magnificence should be destroyed, whom all Asia and the world 
worship it. Now, he makes some pretty big claims there at the end uh, about Diana, but I just want to sort of make it uh, understandable a little bit for us here. Now, remember, uh, Ephesus, despite its importance as a trade city, it made a lot of its wealth because of the temple of Artemis. You remember, we looked at that last week, and we sort of described the temple there and what it looked like and how it was, and I think I've got a picture of it here, uh, uh, an illustration of what it would be like. Um, But a great deal of the local economy was connected to the selling of shrines or of little trinkets uh, that looked like the Temple Diana or looked like Diana. And often what people would do when they would come from all around the area, that's why he said all the world worships here at Diana, they would come and they would buy one of those trinkets, they would buy one of those statues, and they would take it to the temple to be blessed by one of the priests or the priestesses there that were there. Of course, they obviously were involved in a lot of other terrible things that happened. Very, very immoral. Um, but that's what they would do. And it's so interesting historically that the temple here became so wealthy that it became the main financial institution in the city. Basically, the temple became the bank of the city so that you could go and you could um, make deposits and you could also get loans from the temple. And uh, I, I, I just, to me, it's hard to understand, you know, like to imagine it like in our day, like a church being a bank at the same time, you know. Um, but that's what it was. And so for these men that were down below, these craftsmen that were below the temple and all around it, for them, the sale of these trinkets and, and uh, these shrines and these little things, it was big business for them. And so Demetrius, I kind of see him as the leader, you know, of the local 542 union, you know, craftsman union. Uh, I see him gathering the people together and saying, listen, we've got to do something about this. We got to, we got to, uh, our business here is being threatened. And so they noticed this dip in their profits. And so they accused Paul. They were able to pinpoint it. And I love this. They were able to pinpoint what the source of the dip in their profits was. And that was so many people were coming to Jesus Christ. Here he claims that Paul was misleading the people, and he, he, says, he says that these are not real gods, and he claims as well that uh, Paul's preaching, if you notice there at the end, he said his preaching threatens to rob Diana of her rightful glory, you know? Uh, he, is, he is dismissing the fact that she is so amazing. And Now, Demetrius, he's not a dummy. He's smart in what he's doing here, because what he's doing is he's gathering people. He's saying he's threatening our profitability. And then he also takes it to the side of maybe patriotism where he says he's threatening our, uh, you know, our way of life. We are the Ephesians and we worship Diana. And he also makes it about religion. You know, he's diminishing our great goddess Diana, this one that we uh, look to and this one that we serve. Now, I, I don't think that Demetrius here is really led by great de- devotion to Artemis. I think what it really comes down to is profitability and his greed and the fact that his business was suffering. But he recognized the power of bringing religion and patriotism into this argument and this discussion because he's trying to rile the crowd up. And guess what he does? He riles the crowd up. Look at this here in verse number 28. And when they heard these sayings, they were full of wrath. <laughs> That's an uncontrolled anger saying, Great is, and cried out saying, great is Diana of the Ephesians. Now think about this. He, he brings this argument and then they respond by being just uncontrollably angry. And then they just begin to shout, great is Diana of the Ephesians. It would be so interesting to see there, uh, to be there. It's also interesting to me how whenever you attack somebody's idols, how angry they get, right? Hey, Owen. Sit in your chair, okay? Stop disturbing your brother. Thank you. I can see it because we're not live streaming, right? Okay, good. Guys, sit there and pay attention. Okay, good. Uh, verse number 29. So they get angry because he threatens their idols. Then verse 29. Then, and the whole city was filled with confusion. And having caught Gaius and Aristarchus, men of Macedonia, Paul's companions in travel, they rushed with one accord into the theater. This is interesting. So Demetrius, his plan to serve the people is it's working great. <laughs> they are ticked off. 
they grab the nearest Christians they can find, uh, Gaius and Aristarchus. They're the ones who had come with Paul, actually, from a different place. And they, they, they're like, those guys are Christians, and they grab them. And then it says that this huge group of people goes rushing uh, into the theater, and at the same time, they're chanting, great is Diana of the Ephesians. So this whole thing is just getting out of control, and they go into the amphitheater. Now, the amphitheater of Ephesus is very interesting. It's still, remnants of it is still there today, and uh, I've got a picture of it. All right, there it is. And uh, they estimate that somewhere between 25,000 people can fit in this place. I mean, it's, it's a massive, massive place. Uh, to the left where you see some of those people sitting down on the bottom there, uh, that is, um, uh, that's like where gates where you would come rushing in or they would come in from the city. And so this was not a small, like, 25 people, you know, chanting in the streets. This was a major, major event that was taking place in Ephesus. And they drag these Christians, they drag these people, and they go into the theater. And things are starting to get out of hand. And at some point along the way, though, things got a little bit confused and, and things got really out of hand. And I want you to see this in verse number 32. It says, some therefore cried one thing and some another. <laughs> so at first, they're all like, we're angry, Artemis, you know, uh, he, we're losing business. And now some are yelling one thing, another part of the crowd is yelling another thing. Uh, it says, for the assembly was confused, <laughs> and the more part knew not wherefore they were coming together. Like, why are we here? We have no idea. I mean, imagine a crowd of thousands of people all chanting different slogans, uh, and, 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 and then some didn't have a clue what was going on. And to me, it really reminds me of some of the things that you see today. Uh, I, I love this sign at a recent protest. I don't believe in anything. I'm just here for the violence. You know? <laughs> I love this. I have another couple ones here. I've seen these ones. These are so great. You know, I was told there would be cake. You know, he's standing in a crowd of people. I don't know what we're yelling about. And uh, those, are, those are found on a website for Canadian protest signs. I thought that was funny, right? We're all polite. And, uh, um, and uh, anyway, <laughs> that, was, that was great. But that's what it reminds me of is people... Uh, people in, in sometimes in protests, you see them doing that. But here in F Ephesus, they're just, I mean, some are like, why are we here? I don't know. We're just here for the violence. We're here for the anger. We're, we get, and of course, there are some cultural aspects of, of emotion and stuff in, in certain areas of, of uh, uh, definitely in the Middle East. There's like a, I don't know, people are, are, are emo very, very emotional, you know, in some respects. Different, you know, North Americans, Canadians were very reserved in some way. Other countries are very much emotional. And, and that's, I mean, that's totally great. But uh, very quickly, a crowd gathers, and there's this huge riot that's going on, and it's chaotic, and uh, they're turning a course against the believers, but then the Jews kind of step in. Now, remember, the Jews are always looking to get at Paul as well. Look what happens in verse 33. And they drew Alexander out of the multitude, the Jews putting him forward. And Alexander beckoned with the hand, so he goes there to the front, and he would have made a defense to the people. So this guy Alexander is put out there, but when they knew that he was a Jew, all with one voice, about the space of two hours, cried out, great is Diana of the Ephesians. Do you see that there? So this guy, Alexander, comes up, and he begins to beckon to everybody. He says, hey, I want you to listen to me. But then they find out he's a Jew. And by the way, Ephesus was very anti-Semitic. There were Jews that were there, very anti-Semitic. They see him, and they're like, well, this is somebody else we're upset about. And so for two hours at the top of their lungs, this entire crowd is saying, great is Diana of the Ephesians. And Alexander doesn't really get a voice. Now, why was Alexander the one pushed to the front? I don't know. Was he uh, there to just say, hey, listen, just so you know, the Jews that are in Ephesus, we're not connected to those of the way. Uh, they're a separate uh, thing. Or maybe he was like, I'm going to get my digs in at Paul at this time, and I'm going to riot them up. We're going to get this guy out of here. Uh, 
later on, I don't know if this was Alexander the coppersmith. I don't know if you, this is a great uh, side, side note in Corinthians. There's a guy called Alexander the coppersmith that Paul says, did me great harm. I don't know if this is this guy. Just so you know, I don't know if it is. Kind of makes sense. All the craftsmen, he was a coppersmith. I don't know. I'm not going to make any claims here. Interesting thought about. He basically did Paul dirty. He treated him very badly. But either way, he comes out, and when they find out he's a Jew, they're done. They start shouting for two years. Two hours, not two years, sorry, two hours. They begin to shout, great is Diana of the Ephesians. Talk about a chaotic experience. I mean, put yourself in that moment there, you know? Someone tries to speak. Let's call him the crowd. Everybody's shouting. And the question that we have to ask ourselves is, what brought about this riot? <laughs> what brought about this huge gathering of people yelling and and trying to defend their false gods and attacking Paul and attacking the other believers that were there. What brought it about? What brought it about was people who trusted in Jesus Christ as their Savior. That's what brought it about. People who saw the power of the gospel in their own lives as the old dead leaves of their life began to fall away and that new life in Christ began to spring forth. When that happened, it changed their idolatry. It removed the idolatry from their life. They no longer were pursuing after the immorality of the city of Ephesus. And as well, it changed the way they spent their money. I think we can see that very clearly here. It changed the things that they purchased and the things that they bought. They began involving themselves in the things of God rather than the wickedness of their world. And it was a positive change. But when it became a large enough of a change to cause a conflict of interest with their city, Then people took note and persecution came to their lives. And I want you to see here that this is the evidence or this is the result of a person that has surrendered to Jesus Christ. A person who's not afraid to hide the newness and the joy and the change that comes about through their salvation. Now, we today do not have the financial sector attacking us as churches today yet. Uh, Right now, we are still uh, not exactly seeing riots aimed at, you know, closes, uh, churches being closed or slowing the growth of the church. We haven't experienced that yet. Although even as recently as yesterday, a church that I'm very familiar with in California had uh, government officials taping cease and desist orders on their doors telling them that they are threatening or that they are risking more fines and even worse should they continue to have church. That was yesterday. Um, All across the state of California, that's happening. So where was I? (laughs) Sorry, that's kind of on my heart right now. Um, We may not be experiencing that right yet, but I will tell you this, the result of a decision to live outwardly as a Christian A life that leaves behind sin, a life that leaves behind the old way of your past will result in people taking notice. It will result in that. It may be your old friends. It may be family members. It uh, may be your coworkers who won't want to spend as much time with you. Uh, Maybe your family members will mock you. It's always interesting. The family members are the ones who always mock you for being a Christian. Your friends may not mock you, at least not to your face. The family will mock you to your face, right? Um, But as a follower of Christ, I want to encourage you with this thought. As hard as it may be, though, that's not something we should be surprised by. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2 says, Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. That's a for sure thing the Bible tells us. You will suffer persecution. And while we know it's coming and while it's difficult, I would still encourage you with this, and I think you would agree with me. I still don't want to go back to where I was before. 
I still don't want to go back to that old life. And so what we do is we live out 2 Timothy 3.14, just a verse down. That tells us to continue thou in the things which thou hast learned and been assured of, knowing of whom thou hast learned them. I love that because he says you're to continue in the things that you've learned and then you're assured of, you're confident of. Well, what are we confident of? We are confident in our God. We're confident in his truth. And it says, knowing of whom you've learned it from, that's, we've learned that from God, the truth. And so we continue on, even though we know persecution may come, even though it may be difficult to live for Christ at times, we continue on and follow him. And I realize, and I know this 100% today, that many of you here today have lost friends because of your faith. Some of you have suffered uh, the ridicule and the torment of family members or of coworkers, but I do know this as well, that you would not trade that for the emptiness of your old life. You would not trade your new life in Christ to go back to the lost condition of your soul. And so what do we do as Christians today? We stand for Jesus Christ. We stand for the truth. We allow the new creature to continue to push aside the old, and we let that revival uh, within us shine brightly in our dark world, knowing that while there will be some who will attack, and there will be some who will persecute, and there will be some who will criticize, there will be some who will listen. And when they listen and they're able to share the, your faith with them, they will turn to Christ and they will uh, experience that new life that you have within and they'll find that same peace that Christ has given you. I want to remind you of this in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy has begotten us. That's the idea of we are his children again into a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible, undefiled, that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you. That's for us, Christian. We have this, uh, we have this inheritance that is to come. And it says uh, in verse 5, who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. That's the idea that Jesus is the one that's keeping you saved. God is the one doing the saving. And he is the one who's holding you, and he is the one who has done the work of salvation. And so you cannot undo what Jesus has done in your life. Verse number six, wherein ye greatly rejoice. And this is a, a, a call to us as Christians. We rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations, that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. Be encouraged today, church. Be encouraged today. That though we may go through suffering and though we may have difficulty on this earth, still the benefits and the joy of living for Christ, knowing that we have a home in heaven is worth any suffering. As well, the suffering that Christ went through, by the way, is nothing compared uh, to what we go through, meaning his is far greater than what we'll ever go through here on this earth. And if Christ can come to this earth and suffer and die for my sins, surely I can live for him today. And so as Christians, we need to remember that and be encouraged of that fact that if there's transformation, there will be persecution. But I also want you to notice in our passage that transformation will bring protection. Transformation will also bring protection. You know, there is a sure persecution for those who love God, but we also have his great promises of his care for us. And we see that all throughout scripture and in our lives that when we are in desperate times, God's care for his people always shines through. If you were to do maybe a sub-point here, we would see protection for Paul, first of all, in this passage. Protection for Paul. You know, one of the questions that's brought up during the riot, I'm sure, in the group was, hey, where is Paul, right? I thought that. You know, where is Paul in all of this? And uh, unless you were paying really close attention, you notice I skipped some verses there. And so let's go back and look at those now in verse number 30. Paul was in Ephesus. And we see how he responded in verse 30. And when Paul would have entered into, uh, in unto the people... So Paul's like, I'm going into the amphitheater there. 
I, I mean, he's in. I don't know if he was like at the door of the house or he's like, all right, I've had enough. I'm going. It says here that the disciples suffered him not. It's the idea of they restrained him almost. So if he's like, let me at him, you know, and they're holding his arms. Like, I don't know. I doubt it was like that, you know. Uh, but they said, no, 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 Paul, please don't, please don't, please don't go. And certain of the chief of Asia, which were his friends, I love that, his friends, sent unto him, desiring him that he would not adventure himself into the theater. And so we see Paul here, of course, wanting to go into the crowd, right? He's like, I've been stoned before. I've been beaten before, you know. I've been through it. I know that God's there for me. By the way, what a picture of courage, right? of courage that comes through Christ. And he says, I'm going to go, but I'm sure he wanted to defend himself. I'm sure he wanted to go. And to Paul, it was like, this is a great opportunity to preach to like 20,000 people, right? I want to go and I want to I have my peace here. But for the other believers, they recognized that this was not the kind of situation that he wanted to walk into. And so they asked him, they restrained him. They said, please, uh, not like restraining in arms, but uh, they said, please, you know, we don't want you to go in. And here's what's so great. They spoke into his life. And they protected him from a very difficult situation that he might have been walking into. To me, that's a sign of a true friend. Reminds me of Proverbs chapter 27, verse 6, where it says, Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. I believe here that these friends probably thought twice before they talked to Paul. I mean, this is Paul the apostle, right? This is the guy that people were being healed by the, you know, the sweat rags from his brow. And they're like, I don't want to tell him he can't go. This is, you know, but... The, the Lord worked in their life, I believe, in a way, and it gave them the courage to speak to Paul and say, Paul, listen, we don't think this is the right thing. And so for him, I'm sure Paul, knowing Paul's personality, he wouldn't have been happy about this. I'm sure he's like, no, 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 it'll be fine. I got it. I got this. No, we don't feel like you should go into this situation. And so they protected. Man, I'm so thankful for friends in my life that protect me. <laughs> friends that, are, that love me enough to speak into my life and speak the hard things into my life. If they foresee danger, guess what? We all have blind spots, don't we, in our lives? Oh, man, I don't know. Is there a message on blind spots? We should maybe uh, work on that one because uh, we all struggle with this. Areas that we're like, oh, yeah, I'm totally good in this. But an outside source would say, hey, I don't know about that. And so Paul here had these friends who spoke into his life, and I'm thankful for that, those kind of people who do it with love, not just because they're critical, right, but real love, and, uh, and share that with him. And so they protected him. And so we see God, though, through these people giving protection for Paul. Secondly, in this, we see protection for the gospel message. You know, Paul and his companions went through a lot of persecution there in Ephesus. In 1 Corinthians, I talked about it last week, uh, 1 Corinthians 16. I don't have the verse up here, but in verse, uh, 1 Corinthians 16, 18 and 19, the verses, it tells us that he says a great door, remember, is open to me there in, in Ephesus. He says, but there be many adversaries. Later on in uh, 1 Corinthians 15, sorry, the chapter before in verse 32, he says, if after the manner of men, I have fought with beasts at Ephesus. I, I don't know what that meant <laughs> or what that really means. He said, but what advantage, uh, advantage is that me, if the dead rise not, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. That was the attitude that Paul had concerning Ephesus. Later on uh, in 2 Corinthians, he, we, we believe there's a possible allusion to this riot as he mentions the trouble that was there in Asia and how they were oppressed above strength. He even says later on that he despaired for his life because of what was happening in Ephesus. I don't know if that's dealing about talking specifically about this riot, but Paul uh, went through some difficulties but we see the Lord delivering his ambassador. Now in the passages we continue here, the Lord delivers the gospel message and protects the gospel message by using an unsaved pagan city official. He's called here the clerk, the town clerk. He was a, an administrative officer and he turns the, or he, he comes in and he prevents this ordeal from turning into anything further than what it was. Look at verse number 
35. I'm going to read this, uh, the next few verses here to you. And so if you've got your Bible, you can turn over there with me. Verse number 35, it says, And when the town clerk uh, had appeased the people, he said, Ye men of Ephesus, what man is there that knoweth not how that the city of the Ephesians is a worshiper of the great goddess Diana and of the image which fell down from Jupiter? By the way, that's how they got the strange-looking idol that they got is that they said a uh, something came down from sky uh, from the sky and landed there, so he found it and it looked like this many-breasted idol, and so they began to make uh, things from it. Anyway, that's where it, that's where they got this from. That's what he's referring to. Seeing then, verse thirty-six, that these things cannot be spoken against, he says, "Ye ought to be quiet and do nothing rashly, for ye have brought hither these men, which are neither robbers of churches nor yet blasphemers of your goddess." And so he comes here, and he's a he's a great negotiator. Because he says all the right things here. He says, listen, nobody is doubting where you stand on the matter of Diana. Nobody's doubting that. We know that you worship Artemis. We know that. Uh, we know about the image. Nobody's doubting it. And he's saying the whole city is convinced of, of what's happening, and, and you're all good there. And then, uh, and then verse number 38, he says, Wherefore, if Demetrius and the craftsmen which are with him have a matter against any man, the law is open, and there are deputies. Let them implead one another. But if ye inquire anything concerning other matters, it shall be determined in a lawful assembly. So what he does here is he states the case. He says in verse 37, he says, they haven't robbed anyone, you know. They're not going about stealing from the temple or stealing from anyone. We don't even know if there's any public record of them speaking evil against Diana. And then in verse 28, he says, wherefore if Demetrius, and I think he turned to Demetrius. He was at the front of the crowd. I think he turns to him and he says, listen, there's a rule of law here. And if you have a genuine complaint Use the court system to work this thing out. Verse 40, for we are in danger. Here's the warning he's giving to the people. For we are in danger to be called in question for this day's uproar. There being no cause whereby we may give an account of this concourse, saying there's no reason for this happening. And when he had thus spoken, he dismissed the assembly. Here's the warning. He basically says to the people, we don't want Rome nosing around. <laughs> See, Rome was in control still. And as a colony, a unsighted riot of the people could be cause for them to lose that status, lose that status of, of a colony, and Rome's displeasure could be swiftly felt should a city uh, uh, act in this way and cause a lot of problems within the city. So he speaks calmingly to them, and he then is able to disperse the crowd by warning them about what could happen. You say, well, what, this is, this is anticlimactic, right? <laughs> I was hoping for, you know, fireballs from heaven in this. <laughs> what happened here? Well, here's what's happening. God is clearly in control of this situation. That's what I see. And what seemed to be like a catalyst in the movement against Christianity basically became what the kids call a big nothing burger today. <laughs> nothing, like this is just nothing. It, it turned into just nothing at all. This massive crowd protesting, and then this unsaved Roman, uh, uh, Roman, uh, Roman official who's kind of a stickler for the law comes in and just shuts it all down. And, and you, you have to understand, the church would have been concerned, right? I mean, the church in Ephesus would have been concerned, but then God stepped in and he orchestrated the events so that his servant and that his message would be preserved and continue to grow because God still had a purpose. God still had something to do, which reminds me of this fact. God is more powerful than any attacks that Satan may bring to his people. God is far more in control. And this story should remind us, church, that as believers, no matter what is happening to us, 
The way to advance the kingdom of God is still not by force. It's not by weapons. It's not by violence. The way to move the gospel forward is just preach the gospel and watch God work. Because here's what happens when we do that. When we preach the gospel and people are made new in Christ, when they renounce their sin and when they renounce their idolatry, by the power of the Spirit, an entire social order can be impacted. And that's what we see here. I mean, we see from finance to religion, this entire city was impacted, not by Paul getting a bunch of guys with swords and taking over, but by simply the gospel being preached in a pagan city. And so for me today, I'm so encouraged by that, because even in a city like Vancouver, (laughs) we just need to keep exalting Jesus Christ, lifting him up through our voices, lifting him up by our lifestyles. And when Paul writes his letter to the Ephesians later on, this is what he describes, and I want you to see this. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 21, where it says, In whom all the building fitly framed together groweth into an holy temple in the Lord, in whom ye also are builded together for an habitation or a dwelling of God through the Spirit. You say, what was Paul talking about? He is talking about the fact that the church is a group of individuals that have a common mission, and that's the temple of God. Is how He, he talks about how we are growing together. We're the temple of the Lord. We are a group of people that stand for something. Like an ancient temple would be up on the hill, the church of Jesus Christ, the group of people uh, that know him are put together and we are a representation of what God is doing here in this city. And it's also a representation of the power of Christ and his people and the difference that we make when we are led by the Spirit. You know, we as a church are made to worship God, but we don't, or we are made to worship, but we don't worship the idols of this world. We worship the one true God and we lift up Jesus the one who comes to reside in repentant people, the one who can transform us from the inside out. And the great thing about this passage that I see is that when we stand back and we watch transformation take place, it's always amazing to see what God can do in the life of an individual and as we see today in our passage, in an entire city. An entire city was transformed because of the gospel. We hope that today's message was a help and encouragement to you in your walk with God. To stay connected with us, give us a like on Facebook or follow us on Instagram at Van City Baptist. Our prayer is that God will grow and bless you as you pursue His will for your life.